We did it. This is the final message in the book of Genesis. We started way back at the beginning of of the year, slowly working our way through the entirety uh, of the book of Genesis. And uh, I hope that you all enjoyed this series. I've got a lot of feedback um, that that you've enjoyed these biblical series that we just power through a book. We did Matthew last year. We're doing Genesis. We did Genesis this year. Um, if that's true, your feedback in these things is really helpful. So if this was a, if this was a series you enjoyed, uh, if you enjoyed that format, that's, that, then let us know that. If you don't enjoy that format, still let us know that. It helps us kind of plan out what we're going to do moving forward. We are gonna, so we end Genesis this week. Lisa's got a, just a standalone message next week. Um, and then the series that we're going to have a few series upcoming after that where, um, where we're going to work through some, uh, where we're not going to just jump back into a book. We're going to work through some d- bigger and deeper concepts. Uh, the one, the series after this is going to be on partnership or what, it, what does it mean to be part of the church? Uh, why does the church exist? What does it mean to commit to one another? What are we doing in this space? So that'll be coming next. Uh, we've got a great services lined up for Christmas and Easter as well. Uh, so we've got some great things coming. And then we'll be thinking about what book to do next after that. So if you've got ideas, love to hear them. I know a few of you have thrown out Exodus, uh, comes right after Genesis. It's a possibility, so let, let, let us know. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this series, though, and I hope that you've got a new appreciation for the book of Genesis. I know I do. Uh, it's one of those books that I've read many, many times, it being the beginning of the Bible. I've, I, uh, I've read it often, but at the same time, um, going through it slowly like we did gave me new eyes for it, which tends to happen every single time. We, we, I go through a new book in a slow way. It's been an amazing learning experience for me, and I hope it has been for you too. Um, <clears throat> what we see uh, throughout the book of Genesis is that we see a book filled with stories that has so many layers of meaning. Um, <clears throat> what, and then we've seen inside of those things, we, we have the basic understandings of these stories, but then we also have these, these themes that run throughout the book. And what I want to do today as we look back over the book of Genesis is we want to pull out one of those themes that we see run through the book of Genesis, but then I actually want to show you that that same theme runs throughout the whole scripture as well. Kind of answering the question, why did we do Genesis, and what does that mean for us as we move through the rest of the year? You see, there's a cycle that happens in Genesis. It happens actually over and over and again in the book of Genesis. It begins in the very beginning. And, and which isn't surprising, obviously. That's where you would start. But in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we get the story of creation, in which God's put all of the pieces of the, this created world in order. Uh, we get the poem at the beginning in Genesis 1 saying that God creates all these spaces. And then all of these spaces are perfectly created for the things that he fills them with. So he creates light and dark, and then fills the light and the dark with the sun and the moon. He creates the air and the sea and then fills the air with the birds and the fish. He creates land and, and puts people and animals on it. He creates these spaces that he perfectly fills. The beginning of Genesis, both Genesis 1 and 2, give us a vision of what should have been. Right? This, 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 per, this perfect space in which we have a relationship with God, in which we have a relationship with nature around us, in which God declares each of these phases and pieces to be very good, to be good. Uh, to be part of this, this good created order. It's, it's important for us to constantly remember where the Bible starts, in this space of the way it should be. But then we get the second part of the cycle very quickly. We get the breaking of what was good. 
This is what it should be. This is why it's not like that anymore. We see the fall of humanity, the temptation to be the gods of our own lives. Right? That's if we talked way back at the beginning of the year that the sin of humanity was not just eating a fruit. That, that was obviously uh, violating what God had told them. But it was their desire to be the gods of their own lives. Because the temptation of the devil was to say, hey, God's holding out on you. You could actually be like him, knowing good and evil. And that's the place where Eve goes, oh, huh, that does sound interesting. God's holding out on me. I can be the God of my own life. I can do what God was supposed to do because I could know good and evil and I can handle that. The problem is that the, the lie of that statement, the devil was telling the truth. You'll become like God knowing good and evil. The lie is you can't handle it. And we see that right away. That we step into this place of wanting to be the gods of our own lives, and when we do that, everything starts to break. We see it in the story of Adam and Eve. As soon as they, as soon as, uh, as soon as they eat the fruit in the garden, they realize the relationship with nature is now destroyed. It breaks that space, and the world they're living in is no longer perfect for them. They feel naked. They need to, they need to hide. It breaks their relationship with God. Instead of walking with him in the cool of the day like they used to, they now hide from God. They feel shame. And it also breaks the relationship between the two of them. Almost immediately after the fall, they start fighting, right? That God says, Adam, where are you? And he says, this woman you put here with me, she made me do it, right? We already have immediate uh, wife blame right out of the gate there, right? Which, if you remember, we talked the contrast of those statements right before Adam says that. He go, he, he, uh, is the moment in which God says, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. And he brings Eve to Adam and he goes, whoa, man. Right? Like, thank you. Got a little chuckles on that one. Appreciate it. And, and so he, <laughs> he really likes it in the first space. And then only a chapter later, he's going, this woman you put here with me. I didn't even want her. But that's obviously not true. The relationship between nature is destroyed. The relationship between God and us is destroyed. And the relationship amongst ourselves is destroyed. From moving from that space, the very next story, we start to see the, the devastating consequences of sin. The story that comes right after they leave the garden is the story of Cain and Abel. And in that space, right out of the gate, we see that we have this tension between brothers, jealousy, right? Where Cain want, desires to, to have the favor that Abel is getting, but he's not wanting to give the same effort or same kind of gift that Abel gave. And as a result, his sin, even though God warns him, says sin is crouching at your door, it wants to consume you, Abel gives, or Cain gives in and murders his brother. What we see in this cycle is we see the way things should be. We see why they're not there anymore. We break it. We even have God inviting us into a process of putting it back together, but we screw that one up too. And so then what we get is the third part of that cycle, is, the, is God's effort to draw it all back together again. We see that in the story of Noah. Hey, this world has become so corrupted that we need to have a restart. Get the restart button because things are really, really messed up. God brings, that's where we get the beautiful story of Noah being faithful Surviving the flood, we get the beautiful rainbow in the sky. This, we've all seen it in our kids' murals, right? This really peaceful scene of two-by-two two animals coming out with a nice, uh, nice um, rainbow perfectly centered, or the, with the ark perfectly centered underneath it, right? And they get the birds flying and everybody's smiling, even though, man, you, you think Noah just want to lay on the ground after all that stinky time in the boat, but 
but still get this beautiful picture. The problem is that even in that big reset, it does not take long for us to fall into the same cycle again. The end of the story of Noah, God is saying, this is the way it should be. You with me in this space in which we can create this different kind of world. Now, clearly, that world has still fallen, so it's not exactly like the beginning of Genesis, but still, it's a reset. It's supposed to be this perfect place uh, in which, which we can move into a better direction. But before we even end the story of Noah, we already fall back into, why isn't it like that? Because sin persists again. We see the story of Ham in which, Ham, uh, which Noah gets drunk, passes out, and Ham does something to him. If you weren't here for that, ser that sermon, you'd have to go back to think about what that might have been. Noah immediately is then cursing his son, and it all falls apart again. We have the Canaanites that come out of that space. We have this strife again. We see that it doesn't, see that it doesn't take long from Noah to get back into... Sorry, guys. That, in case anybody was sleeping, I just wanted to wake you up with me. So hopefully we're there. Don't touch the end of the microphone. <laughs> It doesn't take long for the world to just fall back into the way it was before. And we see that by the time Abraham comes around, in which God says, I'm gonna, the world's not the way it should be, and so I'm going to interact with you again. I'm going to try to lead you to this new place to show you once again this is how it should be, this new kind of reset. We're gonna have a, I'm going to pick a, a group of people, and I'm going to bless them. And they're going to have a special kind of interaction with me so that we can show the world that this is the way it's supposed to be. And then out of that space... They're going to bless the rest of the world. And for, for a while, it works that way. Abraham follows God, and, but then we see even in the story of Abraham, there's, a, there's fractions. There's places in which Abraham doesn't do what he's been called to do. It doesn't actually take long in the story of Abraham until so we start to see that fracture again. We, talk, we saw the relationship between Abraham and Isaac was not a good one. I mean, partly because dad tried to kill him. Mm, not a not, a, not the best way to get along with your dad, right? We saw that. We saw that, that, that Isaac almost has no page time, and he's living in the Negev, which is where Ishmael was living. Maybe they were together, maybe they weren't. But we have a fractured relationship right away between Abraham and Isaac, even though he's the child of the covenant. Out of the relationship, out of, out of Isaac's life, we see fractures again with, between Jacob and Esau. Jacob being a sneaky kind of con man who, who steals his brother's birthright and inheritance, and we see a fracture in the family right away. We see these options that maybe they'll be pulled back together, but Jacob tends to continue to miss that. Until we finally get to the end of Genesis, in which we've seen the story of Joseph, and we ended the story of Joseph with the Israelites actually in a pretty good place, didn't we? Uh, they've, they've moved to Egypt now. They're living in a pretty good part of Egypt. Uh, they they're survived the famine. Um, and as we know from, uh, from the end of Joseph's story, they're able to flourish there. Uh, we, we, Joseph's able to actually see a couple different generations grow there, uh, and, and they, they flourish in the land of Goshen. So we actually, if you were just to end the story of Scripture in the book of Genesis at the end, you'd be feeling pretty good. Yeah, we went through this rocky space but now we're in a good spot. We're in a place of safety, a place in which it feels like we're flourishing, all of those things. <clears throat> now it's easy. It would be easy for us, it's often when we read the Bible, to take each of these books kind of as their individual chunks. <clears throat> 
we, we, the Bible for, throughout history has been organized into what we call books. The Hebrews would call them scrolls. And I think sometimes in our minds that can, that can keep the Bible segmented from us, that we can just see Genesis, standalone, good, we're done with that. Let's pick up in Acts. And then, but there, there, there are these two things that are both part of the Bible, but they're disconnected in that way. But... Um, um, even though that's easy, what we, off, what, we, what we can miss in the midst of that is that that's not how the Bible was written. Yes, we've organized it into books, um, but the Bible is not meant to be read as this segmented kind of grouping of things. Uh, <clears throat> we saw it in Matthew. When we moved to the New Testament, it is constantly referring back to the Old Testament. It's to show you, yeah, yeah, this is the story of Jesus, but it's not all standalone on its own. It's not this thing that's disconnected from everything that's coming. Actually, Matthew goes out of his way to show you that, that the story of Jesus has been actually playing itself out all the way back to Genesis and then through the entire Old Testament story. It's constantly uh, pointing us back into those places to understand uh, what was happening there and how it relates to the future. See, we study Genesis this year because it's the beginning of the story. But Genesis doesn't end at the beginning of its book or its scroll. We ended the book of Joseph last week, I said, like, with, with the death of Joseph, and honestly, pretty good place. Um, but that is the, the, the book of Genesis itself isn't even supposed to complete our story there. Because yes, we ended with the Israelites in a good place, but if we were going back to the promises that God gave to Abraham, we realize that there's a reason we feel like we're in a good place, because God promised Israel, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you and be with you, I'll watch over you and protect you. And we see all of those things, that we have this beginning of a nation, we have the 12 tribes of Israel existing, that they are flourishing, they've been blessed in the space they were in because of God's work through Joseph. Both of those things are true. Both of those things in the promise of Israel is true. Even the fact that in the midst of that, you'll bless other people is also true. When we end the story of Joseph, we see that not only has God blessed the Israelites, but because he's brought them into Egypt, he's blessed the, a good portion of that part of the world as well. That because Joseph is in Egypt, because he's able to store grain, there's a whole group of people that now aren't starving. So those early promises that God said to Abraham, these are the things that are going to happen, have happened, except one big one that is, any Israelite would pick up right away, and maybe you have already too. Another part of the promise that God gave to Abraham was, I'm going to bless you in those ways, and I'm also going to do it by giving you a piece of land. The promised land, it becomes called uh, at this point. And that's the thing that doesn't exist at the, beginning, at the end of Genesis. Sure, the Israelites are now a nation. They now exist in a place where they're flourishing, but they don't have their own land. And so the question is, when's that going to happen? We're left with a little bit of unfinished business. And that very quickly becomes the problem. We end the book of Genesis in a really good place, but it does not take long when we move to the next book to see that that goes away. Exodus 1.6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. It's almost like the cycle of Genesis begins again. The book of Genesis ends, ends in this place of this is how it's supposed to be. 
from the garden, a place of relative prosperity, we're about to move again into the devastating effects of sin, into slavery. If you're not familiar with the story of Israel, the book of Exodus moves from this place in which the Israelites were invited into Egypt to be as guests to a place in which Egypt feels threatened by them and so they become slaves and enter into a long period of time in which they're brutally mistreated in Egypt. Once again, we move from garden to thistles. Once again, we see sin's destructive force on the world, this time not because of Israel's failure, but because of Pharaoh. See, it's real easy sometimes, because the Bible in the Old Testament especially is focused on the nation of Israel, to forget that, the, that Genesis, Exodus, the Bible itself is the story of Israel, sure, but it's also the story of the rest of humanity and sin's effect in those ways. So in this case, Israel is experiencing the devastating effects of sin because of the failure of someone else, not because of their own. Now, like I said, someday we'll work through the book of Exodus. There's, there, there are talks of starting it next fall. Um, um, but for now, we're just going to do a, a flyover. This new pharaoh enslaves the Israelites and brutally oppresses them. They're experiencing what happens when a person puts themselves in the place of God. Pharaoh actually believed he was God. Uh, he believed that he was ordained by the gods, but also was one himself. Uh, depending on the dynasty that you're in, some believe they were fully gods. Others believe they were like sons of God, so that they were like deity light. But either way, they viewed themselves as gods. But what we see again in the midst of their oppression, God meets them and raises up a leader in Moses who then lays a plan to get Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. We see God immediately trying to pull his people back to himself in those ways. But quickly after leaving Egypt, we mess up that plan again too. God lays out for for Israel at, at Mount Sinai all of the things that they need to do to flourish, similar to even how he interacts with Cain. But even in the midst of that interaction... We try to take things into our own hands and mess it all up. The story of the golden calf, if you, maybe you've heard about that, where Moses is on the mountain getting God, the instructions from God, and we, we mess it up already in that space. Or whether it's by the time they get to Canaan, they, they, they refuse to enter, and so they end up wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the same kind of rhythm if we were to take it as a whole. We've got Genesis, this is the way it should be. Exodus, this is why it's not that way. Leviticus, this is how to put it right. Numbers is actually a place in which we see them screw it up often because Numbers is a book filled with a lot of Israelite deaths. Places in which they aren't faithful to God and so their numbers actually decrease throughout that book. To bring us to a place in Deuteronomy in which there's, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy, they stand at the edge of the promised land ready to enter again. This is the way that it could and should be. We see this cycle throughout the, the, the books of the Torah. Here's what it should look like. Here's why it's not that way. Here's how we get back. Here's how we screw it up. And then, and then God doing something big to bring us back into that space. Over and over and over, we see that in, throughout, the, throughout the book throughout just the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. But that cycle doesn't just end there. You move into Joshua and Judges, and you see the same kind of cycle, God calling us back to himself. You see it through the kings. And it finally then brings us to the New Testament, into a space in which Israel has once again found themselves failing to live the way that God has called them to. 
Ironically, this time, different from the way it worked in the Old Testament. This time, they're trying. We see Israel failing to follow God in the New Testament, but not for lack of effort. Sometimes we see that in the Old Testament. They just go to other gods instead. They leave God behind. They don't want to do the things that he's asked them to do. In the New Testament, we have a group of people known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees who... Who, who, who aren't refusing the faith like they did in the Old Testament, but instead have decided to lean in and hyper-enforce the rules of Leviticus. That, hey, we're not going to mess it up like they did back then, and so to do that, we are going to so strictly follow all the rules that there's no way we can mess it up, and ironically, it's the very reason they do mess it up. Throughout the Gospels, what we see is that even though they are legally and strictly trying to follow all of these rules, time and time again, they come into conflict with Jesus who said, that's not the point. You've heard it said this, but I, it's this. Hey, you're doing this. You give, you're tithing a tenth of everything you own, and there are poor people everywhere. The point of the tithe was to care for the poor. You missed it. Over and over and over and over again, we see them that, that even though they are trying to follow God different than the Old Testament, they're still screwing it up to the same devastating effect as what we saw in the old. They just traded their idol from, from Baal to their need for control. And, the, and either in both cases, still placing themselves in the gods of, as the god of their own life. Here's the way it should have been. Here's why it's not that way. Here's the way back. And we failed to follow that to which is where Jesus enters the scene. This cycle plays itself out over and over and over and over and over again in the, in the, in the scope of books throughout the Old Testament, in the scope of collections of books in the Old Testament, in the scope of the meta-narrative of the Old Testament, and even bringing us into the new. But the final step of, of that cycle that we hadn't seen yet is, is, is where Jesus comes in, in which God does something big to draw us back to himself. In the book of Romans, it says, at the, just the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were still stuck in this cycle, Jesus came and died for us. In that space, Jesus conquers sin and death and creates this space in which we can have a new kind of relationship with God. And actually, right after the resurrection, we move back into a space in which we see this is how it's supposed to be. We see it in Acts 2. Acts 2, 42. I think we have that on a slide as well. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And so the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We've talked about, a lot, talked about this a lot through the book of Genesis, but at the meta-narrative of the Bible as well. When, Israel, when Adam and Eve fall in Genesis 3, from that moment on, God says, you and I are going to put this thing back together. Well, the Eden that was broken, we're going to work together to, put, to make right. And that's what God is constantly trying to do. We get pretty close to it in Acts 2 here, don't we? In which we have this group of people that are constantly living life together self-sacrificially. That if anybody in this space is in need, we're going to care for them well. As much as we can on this side of eternity, it feels like 
they're getting it right, to say this is the way it should be. As pastor, I know that we like to teach Acts too often going, could we please be like that, <laughs> right? And yet, we realize we're not. Pretty quickly after Acts 2 here, we start to see things spiral downwards again. We see in the Acts 2 passage, and they, and they experience the favor of all people. There's a moment in which everybody loves them, but that moment doesn't last. Pretty quickly, that system starts to threaten the system that exists. We have this religious structure that's in place. It's supposed to work this way, and that's not going to do it. And so persecution begins very quickly after that. From, from the religious folks, we see that in the story of Paul, and eventually from Rome as a whole. So why share all of this? A couple reasons. First, I hope, you're, I hope through all of that you're able to see something really beautiful about the Bible. See, a book written over a couple thousands of years by multiple different people has a cohesive story. Now, maybe that doesn't shock you, uh, but I think it should. <laughs> the fact that, you, that if, you had, if you had to have, if you had somebody uh, write a book at the early part of American history and write it now, they're going to sound very, very different, and they're probably not going to fit well together. But what we see here throughout Israel's story is that even though you've got thousands of years of stories written by many, many different authors, the themes and, the, and these cycles and all of these different things fit together all the way through leading to the New Testament. Written in three different languages over the course of that much time, that's, that's astonishing. But there's something else here I hope to spend our time on this morning. See, the Bible is a book about humans' relationship with God. God created us to, to have a deep, meaningful relationship with him. It's also the story about our relationship with creation and each other. Now, we could read a book like Genesis for every year and view, those stories as people about, view them as stories about people that lived long ago. We could be interested in the historical components of that and just leave it at that There's some things, and, and learn some good moral lessons, I suppose, if we wanted to. And I, but I hope you've been able to see over this past year, these aren't just stories of people long ago. They actually are our stories as well. Even though the world is a dramatically different place than it was back then, so much of what they're going through is similar to what we're going through now. From, in the words of, uh, of Solomon later on in the Bible, there is nothing new under the sun. I'm shocked as we work through the book of Genesis how often I go, God, we have gone nowhere, Right? The things they're dealing with there are the exact same things we're dealing with now. How is that possible? It's been 10,000 years, whatever, many thousand years. See, what we see is we see it from a meta-narrative perspective. Collectively, we as people continue to fall into the same cycles over and over again. We can see the same progression that Israel went through in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or through the rest of the Old Testament, play itself out through the history of the church. If you, were, if you were to do, I would be interested to just see how much the early, the early church, the church of the medieval time, mirrors Israel. Places in which you're doing a great job, and the church grows, and it's the most charitable organization on earth, and it changes the trajectory of the world. That happens. And any of you who have any knowledge of history at all know that there's some of the most horrible atrocities that we humans have done to each other have been in the name of God or the church. 
Both of those things exist. They exist in the Old Testament as well. Israel does the same. From a meta-narrative perspective, we can see that we fall into those same cycles. We, um, but that's not all. What I want us to focus on just for the last few minutes we have here this morning is we realize that, that it is often that that same cycle plays itself out in our individual lives. That the cycle that we see in the book of Genesis, in the Torah, throughout the Old Testament, leading to the New Testament, is a cycle that plays itself out in all of our lives. There's a moment in most of our lives, some people are born into tragedy right away, and I'm so sorry if that was you. But for many of us, there's, a, so there's something about the innocence of childhood that help us understand the way it should be, the genesis of our story, the hopes, the dreams, the things that we hope to accomplish, the hope, things that we hope to impact the world with, whether we can realize them or not as kids. Many of us can look back to times that we had as kids and go, that, I wish I could just get back to that. There are times that I watch my kids... And I wish that I could experience the world that they do, too, with that innocence that they have, without the jaded lenses that I sometimes look at it through. We all have a Genesis story in which we realize there's a way things should be, that there's a flourishing kind of life that we were created to have, and we all can have at least some kind of taste of that. But we, like Israel, all of us, fail to live into, that, uh, into, that, into God's calling. We fall short in one way or another, or we, we, we are around people who, who aren't doing that that affect us as well. In the story of Exodus, Israel's failure is not what causes them into hardship, it's Pharaoh's. Some of us live a life in which we have created the hardship for ourselves, which we see through the book of Genesis as well. We've made mistakes. We've done things that hurt us or people around us. We've made choices that we're still experiencing consequences in. We find ourselves in a place of slavery. It's not an accident that the New Testament, when referring to sin, calls it like, it refers, uses the metaphor of slavery, that it's something that binds us into this space. It's the same message we've seen playing throughout the Old Testament. Some of us today are in that space. We feel like we're in a place of slavery, that the decisions we've made have got us bound up and stuck and are preventing us from realizing the kind of life that God has for us. Others of you find yourself in that place not because you did anything wrong, but like Israel with Pharaoh, because someone else did something wrong to you, because they didn't live into the potential that God called to them, and so their, their failure to live into that life has caused you harm as well, which is preventing you from living into that as well. We can relate to Israel's struggle in that space, that we know there's a way things should be and we know there's a reason why they're not. And so like Israel, we experience slavery and sin. We experience hurt and destruction in our lives. And I think it's because of all of us can find ourselves in that space that it's important for us to remember Genesis. Remember the cycle that we've seen through this book. Because what we have seen clearly through the book of Genesis, if we were to read the rest of the Torah, we'd see the same. Is that even though this cycle persists, in which God says, this is the way it should be, and we fail, what God does over and over and over and over again through the book of Genesis is relentlessly pursue us. If we're talking about humanity as a whole. He meets Cain to say, please don't do this thing. Cain does. And he says, I'm going to put a mark on your forehead to make sure no one hurts you. 
Even Cain, he's relentlessly pursuing. Same is true with Noah, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Esau, with Joseph and Ishmael. Over and over and over again, we see the results of our poor and sinful decisions in which God says, I will come to you even in the midst of that and try to get you back to myself. It plays itself out through the entirety of the Old Testament until we get to the New, which again, yet they're just the right time while we were still sinners, while we didn't deserve it, Jesus says, I'm coming for you. If you're in a place of slavery this morning, it's a simple gospel message, but it is the truest one that we need to hold on to, is that if you're in this place of brokenness or where you found yourself down and out or feeling like you're slavery or these things that you are not flourishing in the way that you ought to, know that like through the Old Testament and the New, that God is relentlessly pursuing you. That his desire is to be with you in the midst of your failure, in the midst of your not measuring up, to walk with you out of that space into the flourishing life that he desires for you. All throughout scripture, it's that same theme over and over and over again. We will fail and he will chase us. We will fail and he will chase us over and over and over and over again until we finally can realize collectively as humanity the beauty of the eternal life that we have waiting for us. One of the things that I have been wrestling with since our common ground last week, one of the things that just gets me excited, that's amazing. If you weren't at common ground, we spent two weeks talking about race with Pastor Chase. And one of the things that Pastor Chase said to us that just strikes me in the midst of this space is he said, uh, there's, he, he reminded us of the vision that comes in, Gen, or in Revelation 7. In which John said, then I looked and I saw people of every nation and every tribe, every tongue and nationality. And, and, and he said, hey, so Pastor Chase is a, is, a, is a black man. And he said, there are a lot of things that, I, that the Bible leaves me uncertain about. He says marriage is going to be different on the new earth. I don't know what that's going to look like, but the relationship between my wife and I, he said, isn't going to be the same. The relationship between my kids and I isn't going to be the same. They'll be adults. They'll be my peers, even though we have a connection. He goes, my job won't be the same. We won't need pastors in the same way on the new earth. But he goes, what's striking to me is the Bible makes sure to go out of its way to point out the fact that something about who God created me to be in nationality and color persists, right? The fact that he can look and see somebody from every nation and every tribe means that they're distinguishing characteristics of that. And I've been struck by that since. And one of the things that, one of the reasons it strikes me is because the collective group that we have there, in which we have people from different cultures, nationalities, colors, and tribes, there's something about that that is the most beautiful representation of what God desires for the world. That we're all created in God's image, and collectively that image, with all of our differences, is the best picture we can get of God. And so, throughout the, and so the reason I share that today is that that's the hope that we're all driving to is this space in which we can live into this flourishing life in which we all realize what God desires for us. But in the meantime, our goal, our mission, the charge of the church is to try to create the spaces like Joseph did. These little bits of time before eternity comes in which we can realize God's movement amongst them. We have that opportunity now as a church as well. I would argue that for a long time, the American church has lost its way. Not entirely. There's always good things that come up in the midst of that. But like we've shared a number of 
times this, in this space, the American church has been on decline for around 100 years, and it's pretty steady. We've messed some things up, and as a result, we're experiencing more strife, more division, more contention than we ever have before. And that's tragic. I think I would argue that those are the tragic results of sin. However, like all the way through Scripture, in those moments, we have an opportunity, if we decide to lean into God, to do something different. To create a space that's different than what has been. To move from the story of Jacob, in which everything's all twisted, to the next generation going, hey, and now we have some, a little bit more stability. We can be part of that. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're stuck in some kind of bondage or slavery, let's work together to lean into God and see what, what kind of flourishing we can find out of that space, where we can grow and meet him in that space. If you're stuck in a place in which somebody is oppressing you or hurting you, let's come together to see how we can lean into God and work our way out of that particular situation. Let's collectively see if we can find ways to represent the kind of heavenly life God desires for all of us. Like we saw through the book of Genesis, like we see through the Torah, like we see through the Old Testament, like we see right after Jesus come, this is what the church is supposed to look like. And when it does, it looks a little bit more like heaven than hell. God is relentlessly pursuing you individually to move into the flourishing life he desires for you. But he's also relentlessly pursuing us as a collective body to live into the mission that we've been given to help others realize the first. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you for, for what we see throughout the pages of Genesis, throughout the scripture, that even in our regular and continued failure, even, even when we failed right after you've called us out of the pit, brought us out of the pit, you don't give up on us. Never. Never through the book of Genesis, never through the Old Testament, that you are constantly and relentlessly pursuing us to bring, you back into, bring us back into the kind of lives you've created us to have. For those of us this morning who are stuck in a place of oppression or slavery or experiencing the awful consequences of sin in our lives, we pray that you can meet us there, that you can give us the courage to lean in even if it will be hard, to, experiencing the kind of, to experience the kind of life you desire for us amidst that. Collectively as a church, God, we pray that, that in the places that we're bound or stuck, you give us vision to step into the, the path that you have, want us to go so that the mission that we have of helping people find their way back to you can be realized. And we, as much as possible on this side of eternity, can experience what should be. Amen.